Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. What I want people to hopefully connect with is to take the steps before it happens and not just sit around and wait for the inevitable chronic diseases we have accepted in our society as normal. To not sit around and wait for the food environment to change. To understand why it is that we have adopted these eating habits that we have here in Australia, the standard Australian diet, and why that's not serving us well. That's me, Andrew Harrisburg, and this is episode 121 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, I hope you are great, enjoying your week, eating well, moving your body, smiling, and sharing a few laughs with those around you. For regular listeners, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Dr. Hannah Ritchie. She's brilliant, isn't she? What an episode that was. For new listeners, howdy. I'm your host, Simon Hill, and you're in my hands for the next little bit. I'll do my best to make sure it's a good use of your time. By way of background, I am a physiotherapist and nutritionist, and in just over a month, will be an author with the release of my first book, The Proof is in the Plants, on May 4th. And in today's episode, I sit down again with a great friend of mine, Drew Harrisburg, and dive into why I wrote the book and what you can expect from it. If this exchange lands well with you and you would like to read The Proof is in the Plants, you can pre-order a copy at plantproof.com forward slash book. That's plantproof.com forward slash book. One last thing before we get into today's episode, if you are in Australia and would like to come on a plant-based retreat that I'm hosting with Journey Retreats in April on the Sunshine Coast, head to journeyretreats.com.au. You can use the code PP200 at checkout for a $200 discount. These are incredible weeks, so I hope to see some of you there. All right, that's enough preamble. Let's do this. This is Drew Harrisburg and me in Byron Bay talking all things plants and all things proof. Catch you on the other side for a short debrief. What a magical way, and I'll let you find your feet here, what a magical way to 
bring in. Episode must be four, five, six times we've done this together now. Mm -hmm. Well, firstly, thank you for letting me do that. That was really fun. I've never brought in a podcast with a live acoustic guitar before. Um, You're a very, very talented man. Now, if people would like to hear more of that, how can they do that? Well, I do have a couple of songs that I released to Spotify and iTunes last year um, and about three people have heard them. So <laughs> if anyone wants to listen, I do have some songs up there. But no, it's, um, it's been a good, uh, well, I guess we better set the scene, right? We've been in Byron for the past 10 days. This tea's very good, by the way. Yeah, it is. This came with the Airbnb. Moroccan mint. Beauty. Um, great blend. <laughs> great blend. We, yeah, we've been in Byron for the last 10 days in this awesome little cabin at Watergoes Beach. I brought my guitar from Sydney. I try to try, every time I come to Byron, I bring my guitar. Um, I've actually taken this guitar all over the world. Like, you wouldn't that believe. That exact guitar? Yeah, you wouldn't believe how many countries it's been to. Is that the guitar your parents gifted you that you spoke about in a previous episode? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's an oldie. Um, so, yeah, this guitar goes everywhere, especially Byron. And Byron actually, oh man, it's such a special place. But for me, it has a, a deep connection with my music because. When I was diagnosed with diabetes 10 years ago, I was in a, you know, a very bad mental headspace and I came to Byron with my guitar and a, and a notepad and I pretty much just sat on this beach um, during the sunset and I wrote a song just unleashing the emotions of what I was going through. And that song ended up being the song that I recorded uh, a few years later and released to Spotify. That's on Spotify. Yeah, so that, that song's about my diabetes. What's you wouldn't that know it. It's called My Two Hands. You wouldn't know it's about diabetes, but it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of got a bit of a discreet um, element of, I guess, sadness and grief with, with a huge message of hope. Um, you guys can listen. You figure it out for yourself. Check what it, it means. out. The lyrics will speak for themselves. But it is a special place though, Byron. Oh, man, so good here. This the past week's been amazing. I feel so healthy. We've been eating like kings. Community has been eating very well. <laughs> Our little household community here. Yeah, I mean, look, we've we've eaten well, we've moved a lot, we've trained heaps, we've got some sun. All those aspects of life. When you get those right, everything else seems to fall into place or feel just that a little bit better. Yeah, I agree. And, and I mean, it's been raining a lot, but even with the rain, I haven't felt like I would back home, you know, that sort of cabin fever. I felt really just peaceful here. Funny because we're in a cabin. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we're literally in a cabin. <laughs> um, you know, last time I came to Byron, it rained every day as well, mm, pretty much. Me too. So, you know, you just have to roll with it. We've made the most of it. Oh, for sure. Despite the weather. It's just a, it, it brings out the creativity and I've seen a t- um, the same thing for you. You've been writing a fair mm. bit and... Tummy time. Tummy time, hey. <laughs> Six hours straight on your tummy typing away. Yeah, it's not until you you actually live with me that that you get to see how I write. It's, mate, it's been very interesting. It's been, I've been observing you. I, I, I did not expect to see you on your tummy typing for six hours a day. Hmm. I do sit. I, I can sit. Uh, I can sit. I just, <laughs> I just find that, you know, we sit down when we eat and if I sit and write for six hours, I get uncomfortable. And that position on my stomach, for whatever reason, 
from as far back as I can remember and even speaking to my, my mother, that's always been a position that I've just found super comfortable. I think everyone has a certain position. Where, how do you like to sit if you're, you know, writing music or? Music, I, I, I sit on the floor. Like, if, like, for example, if I take my guitar down to the beach, I'm comfortable on the ground, but I tried your position and, yeah, my neck wasn't having it. It's like yoga. You've got you to build it up. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, you've, because your, your book's coming out in like a month or so. Is that right? Yeah, May, May the 4th. You know that's uh, Star Wars, National Star Wars Day. Was that intentional? It wasn't, but <laughs> I'm rolling with it. <laughs> Go with it. So a couple months out, I wasn't expecting you to have to, you still be spending so much time writing. I thought you would have just packed it up and it's all done, but I feel like this process just keeps going. It's been three years of writing and, and you're weeks out and you're still yeah. writing. Well, I had to remove a lot of things from the book that didn't fit. And initially I wrote, I think, around 250,000 words and scared the hell out of my publisher. Um, they thought I was nuts, no doubt. They didn't say that to me, but I figured... <laughs> What's you a normal book? Ninety, ninety thousand. So my word limit, my my first first word limit on the first book, and we can discuss what happened with that. But that was, I think, from memory, twenty thousand words, and it was more of a hybrid book. It was going to have recipes and whatnot, a bit more focused on the how. Uh, quickly realized that to say what I wanted to say, and what I felt was sort of true to me and the most powerful aspect of what I do, that is somewhat unique to me is explaining the more complex nuance and science and, and the why and quickly realized uh, you need a lot more words to do that. Um, so I wrote the, the 250,000 words and of course overwrote knowing that it would be cut down and you can't write that many words and expect everyone to get through it. So it's it was about getting everything down and then refining it with the help of Penguin and another writer, Colleen, who I worked with, who was incredible. But, you know, it's her plus the, the Penguin team sort of guided me in terms of how do we cut that down, keep the, the bits that are really necessary, but bring my voice through it and make it really accessible. Um, but the inevitable process was there was certain information that had to be removed. And so now, even though the book's finished, I am working on those bits that have been removed, building those out into PDFs for people that do buy the book. They can then go and access them online if they want a little bit more information. It must be hard letting go of content that you have put the work into and you, you're confident is going to be really important, but because of word limits and other... I spoke to Hannah Ritchie last week and there were so many parallels in what she was saying. She works for Our World and Data, which is a really amazing website. And the, the goal is to, to essentially go and look at all the research on a topic and take all this like complex information. You know, it's like when you grab uh, a peer-reviewed paper, it's almost in another language. So as, as great as all that information is, it's not that accessible to everyone. She takes all the information and then publishes it in something that's more accessible, but always has in the back of her mind that she has to please two people, the academics that are going to critique her and say, oh, you've oversimplified it, you know, what about this? And then also the person who is not a scientist who just needs to access it. So, yeah, for me, it was always that same, I was grappling with the same thing because if, for example, the publisher wanted me to cut something, 
And from their point of view, it was, this is not necessary for the average reader. It's not going to add much, but I was of the the view sometimes that, well, I just, I really want to please that academic that's reading this book. And, and you know, of course, you win some of those battles and you lose some of them. And um, you, you hope that the book at the end of the day, you can please everyone and everyone knows that this is, it's it's not an academic book written for university or, exactly. or academics. Exactly. In filmmaking, the term is killing your darlings. It's like you've got these these babies that you want to have in, mostly for you, for you, for like those selfish reasons of you've discovered them, you're excited to share them. But I'm sure Penguin and other people say, hey, look, you don't really need to have that in. It's not the target. You know? It's almost your ego taking over. Can you know trying to show that you know everything, and you got to you got to put that to the side. The big picture is the book having as much impact as it can. And in order to to do that, while I think it's really important to have the mechanisms and the why, it needs to be accessible. When you scrapped that first draft, which was, I don't know if it was a recipe book or more of a just a what to eat, how to how to be a plant-based, how to live a plant-based life, was there was there something deeper that made you want to make a book about the why? Because I've heard you talk on stage, we've spoken together at certain events, you were at a retreat uh, last week in Byron, and that was phenomenal. That retreat, by the way. Well, I heard from from Adam when we went out for dinner that you told the story about what happened to your father, and that it was really emotional for you and for everyone there. I've heard that story a few times, and it still gives me goosebumps when I hear it. But do you want to share that story? Is that like I, I really think that that's a great way to frame the conversation for why you wrote this book. And, and how important it is to have that deeper meaning when, when it comes to communicating and trying to change people's lives and change the world, when you have that personal deeper meaning with something? For me, it was scrapping that first, that first book was, you're right, it was more about the practical side of adopting a, a plant-based lifestyle and here's, here's the recipes and some tips and tricks and, and whatnot. And, and I still have a lot of practical information in this book, but I wanted to shift the focus to the why. You know, why is it that we're so confused about what to eat? Why are people still arguing about this when the science is actually extremely clear? And at the end of the day, why is this conversation important? Like what, why are we speaking about improving our our diet and usually that comes back to to improving our health and then a layer below that is so we can do more of what we love and a layer below that is so we can spend more time with our friends and families making memories and um you know ultimately you keep digging digging down and you get to the real purpose of you know why do you write these books um and for me, there was no other purpose other than helping people access this information and live a better life. And it wasn't about how many copies can I sell or can I introduce some new fad diet that is going to be a New York Times bestseller. Um, not that they all are. There are great books that are New York Times bestsellers, but... It wasn't about coming through with with the message of of sort of absolutes. I really wanted to honour the science and give people agenda-free information that would clear the confusion. And the reason why that was so important to me is 
the story that I've shared before about my dad, and this is what I shared at the retreat, I think there's a lot more power in our hands when it comes to our health than many of us believe. And when I was 15, one of the sort of activities that my dad and I would do, you know, and my brother, it was a sort of a thing that the three of us would do quite regularly is spend time in the weekends in this house house in the woods, this mud brick sort of cabin house that we had uh, two, three hours out of Melbourne. So quite rural in the country. And we would often explore the Yarra Valley. Dad had a convertible MGB. You know, these were great days, rolling hills and visiting all of these small vineyards. Uh, and that was important because my dad and, and myself and my brother would do some research and, you know, which vineyards are we going to go and see and let's try and go and find small ones where we can speak to the owner and feel their passion and, and inspiration for what they're doing. And um, so I have a lot of very fond memories and I'm sure everyone listening and I'm sure right now you have memories from your childhood with Brian, you know, whether it was playing golf or surfing or whatever, you, everyone has, and it might not be their father. It could be a father figure. It could be their uncle. It could be a godfather. There are those moments that you look back on and they're, at the time, they just seem like a part of life, but they are very much, they have a very big effect on, on the person you're becoming. And on this one weekend, it was just my dad and I. So we were spending time at the, the, the mud brick house in the woods and set off to go through the Yarra Valley and spent the day doing, doing what we would regularly do. And as we were coming back and it was dusk, I still remember it now. It was a, it was a balmy evening. We were talking about Melbourne, the weather, and when it's, when it's hot there, it's really dry. Mm. How old were you at the time? 15. So dad was 41, so quite young. Mm. Um, you know, I'm nearly 35, so six years older than me now. Yeah, wow. And we're coming back. It was that dry, dry heat. Dad started to get some pain in his shoulder and in his chest. And it was quite clear to me that he was in pain. So I remember sort of inquiring, you know, are you okay? He put a brave face on. He kind of pretended probably to protect his 15-year-old son that there wasn't really anything to be concerned by. And he's a doctor and does research on cardiovascular disease and, and uh, diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes. So he, well-educated in this area and deep down knew what was happening for, for certain. I, knew, I know that he did and was more than, more than likely denying it to protect myself, as I said, but also himself. Sometimes if you, if you just deny something, you think it's going to go away. And we ended up getting back to the house and it was just he, he and I and it was sort of, you know, in, into well into the evening by then and uh, I inquired again and he said he was doing better and he was okay and, uh, you know, he, he wasn't sure what it was but he was fine and uh, so I proceeded to go to bed. And a couple of hours later I heard some sort of cluttering around in the kitchen and that was odd because, you know, normally I wouldn't hear that. It wasn't like my dad would, 
regularly get up in the middle of the night and it was quite loud. So I went out thinking that, you know, maybe this has escalated. Mm. You can hear that rain. Yeah, how good. Um, I love it when it rains here. Especially when we're... And we are literally in a treehouse. Yeah, recording a pod. It's perfect. (laughs) I love it. Um, So I, I, I went out and this was like, when I, when I really knew something bad was happening. So his, you know, my dad, hero, strong man, very brave, you know, just helpless, breathless, you know, in need of serious help. And he was able to communicate with me fortunately and um, I called the ambulance. So he didn't call out for you and ask for help. I, I think he would have. Yeah. I think I had just heard it as he was, right, okay. you know, had just sort of come out yeah. into the kitchen and um, the living space area. Uh, you know, I'm not sure whether I have actually never spoken to him as to did, was he coming out to speak with me and to, to wake me up or was he coming out for a glass of water and then this, this started to, to happen. Um, but nonetheless, it escalated. To a stage where he was very breathless, um, it was it was quite clear to me that we needed to get some immediate assistance. Um, pretty scary as a fifteen year old too. Uh, be scary now. And so I, I remember giving the ambulance some information about his condition, and they very quickly said to me, "Well, based on where you are, your location, we're going to send a helicopter." So they sent an emergency helicopter, ambulance, and uh, came and and quickly connected him up to all of these different machines and ran a few tests and said, we we need to to fly him to the nearest hospital. Uh, There wasn't room for me in the helicopter. So all of this was happening obviously very, very quickly. It's like the middle of the night uh, very hard to process at the time. A lot of this I've processed years later in terms of looking back on it and, and thinking about what was happening because in the moment you just, your heart's racing, my heart's racing, um, you know, doing, you know, whatever I can to try and help the situation but also a lot of fear. Uh, so he took off in the helicopter and then they had a, an, an ambulance come by car, a vehicle that I trailed in and that was when I was able to get in contact with my my mother and my brother who were together uh, back in the city and said to them that explained what had happened and that they better come to the hospital. Uh, so there was a lot of unknown at that stage um, and again, dad's only 41 so you're not, this is kind of coming out of nowhere and we go to the hospital after, after some time, a, a doctor came out and I think like based on what I understand now, he would have been the cardiologist probably. And he kind of explained to us that, you know, we've stabilized your dad. He'd had a, a very serious heart attack. He's very, very lucky. He's going to have a second chance at life. You know, around about 60% of cardiovascular events outside of the hospital are, are fatal. You know, and, and sudden cardiac death 
comes out of nowhere, usually with no clinically diagnosed symptoms, no warning. You know, you lose that person, you know, almost immediately or within hours. So he was very, very lucky. But what really stuck in my mind was that the doctor very much emphasized that to my brother and myself that we needed to keep an eye on this. And that's not, that's not bad advice in and of itself. Uh, but he, he really emphasized that my dad's dad, he'd taken a history and my dad's dad had also had a heart attack and emphasized the fact that these chronic diseases run in families. But without any extra information as to why they run in families and you know, what my brother and I and my dad and my mother and anyone in our family could do to reduce the chance of that happening. So for many years, I had this kind of limiting belief, I guess, that, you know, we all have our genetic fate and gen- genetics do play a role. We can get into that. But I, I had this very limiting belief that, you know, that was going to be my fate ultimately. And, you know, it could, it could happen quite young into my adulthood. My dad was, again, he was only 41. So um, it wasn't 10, 12 years later until, you know, I'd finished my first degree, which was physiotherapy and, and had been given the skills to read science that I then started to get interested in nutrition science and started to uncover all of this information that was challenging my beliefs. It was coming to me from my brother initially. He was very much challenging the way that I was eating. Yeah. Sorry, I, just to interject real quick. It's, when, when you tell that story, it's so clear why you turned the book into a book about the why, the deeper why. Because when you can connect with something that's really emotional and something important, it's a lot easier to make changes to your life, right? You obviously completely changed your own life off the back of this incident. But as you were telling that story, I, I draw so many parallels to my own experience. And, and I think that this is something that so many people are going to resonate with and, and have their own unique experience in this way. But in my case, I... So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 10 years ago and your story sounds so eerily familiar to me because although the roles were reversed, so I was diagnosed with diabetes and my dad was next to me. So he's, a, he was a, he's also a doctor, an eye surgeon. And I was diagnosed with this chronic lifelong condition next to my dad and I could see how broken he was by, by this diagnosis and of course the rest of my family as well. But I was the one who put on the brave face to protect him, just like your dad was trying to protect you. And I remember seeing my dad crying uh, after hearing this diagnosis and inside I was completely broken and holding back the tears as strong as I just couldn't let, let them out because I knew that if he saw how upset I was about it, that he, he would just unravel. So anytime I was around my parents for the first few days or weeks after being diagnosed, I was constantly holding back tears, pretending I was okay, just so that they'd be okay. And then when I was behind closed doors, I'd cry myself to sleep. 
I was so broken inside, but I knew I had to pretend to be brave. And I hold on to that very vividly now, not as a driver to be, like I don't, I don't look back at that memory and think that's what made me want to change my life and that's why I eat a plant-based diet and exercise every day and, and lead a healthy lifestyle. I don't use it as a motivator, but I'll never forget that that was the thing that sort of pushed me on this path. And the motivation has changed. Now it's, it's for the beauty and the joy of life. That, that's what motivates me and I love my life so much. But having that pivotal moment when I was 20, it's almost like I needed it in a way to, to feel the joy, the real deep joy of life. And, and I think that wake up call that, that you inevitably get is something that people need to see as an opportunity. Like that it, it is so, I don't wish it uh, for anyone to experience, but if you do get that inevitable, you know, diagnosis or, or difficulty that will change your life in a huge way, it's such an important opportunity to, to capitalize on and, and change your life. And w- when I hear you tell that story about your dad, I now see your, your new book as like a tribute or, or a, a legacy for your dad. Like that this book is the culmination of your whole journey as you saw that happen to your dad, discovered the science, started to read, started to research, started to implement these changes to your own life. And then five, six, however many years later, you now have this book that is basically the, the product of everything that you went through. I said that to him the other day because he's at the age now where he's considering retiring and, you know, the, the inevitable, what am I going to do? And, you know, he's dedicated his whole life to science. Uh, and there's lots of stuff that he can continue to do in the science space. But I do see this book in many ways just another another part of the incredible work that he's done in the field of science, a continuation of that dedication to improving the, the lives of, of those that are affected by his material and his story. So, yeah, I definitely do see it as a tribute. You know, it's, it's interesting because I agree that, you know, fear is often not the best motivator and, and I really like that you talked about the joy but what's really interesting is sometimes, like you said, you need that, that moment in order to, to get you going. But what I want people to hopefully connect with that haven't had that is to just take, take the steps before it happens and, and not just sit around and wait for the inevitable chronic diseases that we have accepted in our society as normal. We have normalized them. And to not sit around and wait for the food environment to change, to understand why it is that we have adopted these eating habits that we have here in Australia, the standard Australian diet and why that's not serving us well. And, you know, so I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the forces at play in in the food environment that are you know they're there they're designed to maximize profits they're not necessarily designed to to prioritize our health so we we need to be aware of those things and but i do think that's a really good point that you made is that sometimes you need that fear but 
I don't want people to sit around and wait for it. Sure. Yeah, you don't need the difficulty of a diagnosis to, to have a reason to change your life. And, and I feel like your book might be a lot, for a lot of people that reason. If you can highlight and explain to people why we're confused, why we're sick, what the food environment looks like and why it is that way, you're essentially giving people the tools to change their life now as a preventative strategy or just as not even prevention because that, that, that implies that something bad is coming, right? Maybe we need to reframe that and say, if you want to extract the most joy and fulfillment out of life, you can do it right now. There's changes you can make. Absolutely. And you may have been dealt a bad card when it comes to your genetics, but that doesn't guarantee poor health. It doesn't guarantee a poor quality of life. And there's so much in your control. And when you make these changes, it's not just that you're, you're hopefully preventing the expression of those genes, but you're also adding more joy and abundance to your life at, at the same time. Yeah. I often think if I didn't get diabetes, I wonder what my life would look like. And I wonder if I would be as healthy today it's, it's, and even as happy. It's like, it's really crazy to think like that. And it sounds strange for a lot of people. Like, I'm not saying diabetes is the best thing that ever happened to me. I but was, you have written a letter thanking diabetes, I right? Did. I did. I wrote a letter. I wrote a thank you letter. Um, I'm going to publish that one day in a book, I hope. You know what? Sometimes I read that letter back because I wrote it a while ago. And it's basically my, my way of treating diabetes like a person and talking to it how I would a friend and just explaining how I feel about it and how, how my mindset has changed over the years. Like when I first was diagnosed, it was like, I hate you. Who are you? Get out. I didn't know anything about it. Like get out of my life. You've taken so much away from me. And then over the years of experimenting with my, my lifestyle and trying to take control and responsibility for my health, I kind of realized that I actually don't hate my diabetes at all. And I now see it as like this partner that I walk alongside, not, not being led by or reacting to. It's, it's really interesting how many positives I've drawn out of it. I think that's also an interesting point to, to discuss here is sometimes, and we have to be very careful with our language and, and that was something I paid close attention to in the book because it can be very easy to write something and to inadvertently accidentally shame someone and one of those areas is you know type type 1 diabetes is a chronic condition right um, and there are many different chronic conditions but there is often this stigma that if someone has a chronic disease their quality of life is not as good as others and I just want to make it clear that that's not the case you can be living with a chronic disease and, you know, just like my, my dad who had his heart attack at 41, he still had cardiovascular disease ever since then. He still has this chronic condition that he has to manage, but he's lived a great life. And I think that's, that's important for people to hear. And, you know, you, if you're living with a, a chronic condition, one, two, however many it is, to not feel as though your quality of life is inferior to those around you just because of that label. Yeah, I, I would add that it's probably in most cases, more difficult. But, but those two things, how difficult your life is and how much joy you can experience, can, they can both be present. You can have a, a, a you know, 
for people with diabetes, there's, there's a stat that gets passed around, which is we have to make an extra 180 to 300 decisions every single day, just diabetes related. So it's like a full-time job. Then add on top of that, the general decisions that you make every day, it's, it's exhausting. However, that doesn't mean you can't have a great quality of life. It just might be a little bit harder in certain aspects or you might have to focus in on certain lifestyle factors more than others. But I wouldn't let those be obstacles to thinking you can't. I think just... that's the key part there. Don't let them be obstacles. You know, and, and it doesn't mean, that label doesn't mean that, that there are not things you can do, albeit, yes, more challenging and time-consuming and difficult, that there, there aren't things you can do that are within your control to live a really high-quality life. You're a great example of that. Yeah, I just hope that people, uh, like, like you said, people can figure this out early and not need a wake-up call. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, but we are, of course, we're speaking to lots of people here. There's going to be young people, you know, right now listening that might be in their 18, 19, 20 years of age. And they're at an age where everything seems like it's so far away and you're, you're sort of invincible. I encourage them to, to try and set up these pillars of their lifestyle early. And there may be people listening who have a chronic condition. And I think it's important for them to understand that, yes, it might be more difficult, but there are things that you can do to, to dramatically improve the quality of your life and live a great life. To sort of zoom out. How's the rain coming down now? I know, this is torrential. <laughs> Love it though. To zoom out and look at those things that we can do from a sort of that bird's eye view perspective, how, how would you easily summarize those things in a nice, concise way for people without giving away too many of the gems in the book. But ha, ha, what's the sort of like thesis almost or, or the, the philosophy behind your approach to, to health and wellness? You know, I think, and you know this, that the, the key to good health is a holistic approach. You know, I zoom in on nutrition and, and, and rightly so because it's very, very important. But of course, it is a holistic approach and there are things outside of, of nutrition that are very important, like exercise and, and sleep and mindfulness and, and things like that. And you'll get a little bit of that in the book where I make it clear that those things are important. The, the largest epidemiological study ever performed that looked at risk factors for developing chronic diseases, the, the, the major chronic diseases that are affecting our populations, cardiovascular disease, you know, people having heart attacks and strokes, type two diabetes, various forms of cancer, dementia, et cetera. And also the major risk factors for, for shortening one's lifespan, you know, living less years. They looked at everything from alcohol to smoking, to unsafe sex, to poor quality water, Right the, right the way through all, all of the major risk factors. And the number one, the single greatest predictor of developing chronic disease or living a shorter life was poor diet. So arguably, that is the single most important thing, the food that we're putting into our mouth two, three, four times a day. The single most important thing that we should be focusing on now, the thesis of my book is that, okay, well, that 
that tells us that diet is very important, but what is it that we should be eating, right? What are, what are the foods that are reducing the, our risk of chronic disease and hopefully adding more healthy years to our life? Despite confusion and we can go into why some of that confusion exists, be it on social media or be it in the food environment, despite the confusion that we may seem to believe is there, the science is really not confused. You know, all of us want a, an absolute. What is the single best brand of a diet? Um, and I spend a lot of time trying to explain to people that that just doesn't exist. And that's a very narrow view of nutrition. When we look at the science that we have available to us today, what's very clear is a set of characteristics that when they are the foundation of a diet, they promote good health. And that is, from a nutrient point of view, diets that are low in saturated fat, they're low in trans fats, they're low in refined carbohydrates, you know, found in foods like ultra-processed foods and, and sugars and white flour and things like that. And at the same time, they're very rich in fiber and plant protein and unrefined carbohydrates and unsaturated fats. And all of that can sound a little bit confusing and it's best explained by a dietary pattern that gets all or most calories from whole plants. When you do that and all or most of your calories are coming from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices, then naturally all of that stuff that I just said before takes care of itself. Yeah, the byproduct is that you stick to the whole foods, don't overthink it, those things will be looked after. They will. And, and that's not to say that macronutrients aren't important. Different people with different goals, you know, while I think the world is too protein obsessed and I think we should be fiber obsessed, I still think we should be protein aware. We should be. And there'll be different people with different goals, be it uh, athletes, which I talk about in the book, or people that are performing uh, more athletic sort of endeavors, or uh, as people get over the age of 60, protein requirements change. So I think going back to what I was getting to there is almost calories from whole plants. We call that a plant predominant dietary pattern. And really, I think that's where nutrition science needs to go. And it, it, it has started to is focusing on dietary pattern, not focusing on zooming in on single nutrients because we don't eat a nutrient, we eat a food. And, you know, 30 grams of protein from chicken is very different to 30 grams of protein from black beans. Not just the amino acid makeup. What it's packed with. What it's packed with. And yes, the amino acid makeup is a little bit different and we can we can go into that if, if need be, but I do explore that in my book and the difference between animal and plant protein and, and whatnot. But you're right, it's what it's packed with. And when you're eating the whole plant, legume in this case, not only are you getting the 30 grams of protein, but you're getting fiber, which most people are deficient in. You're getting you know, a lot of vitamins and minerals, which are also in chicken as well. You're not getting the dietary cholesterol, which is you know, is, has been front and center in, in, in lots of headlines over the years and usually around eggs. I explain, I go through the science on that. Again, it's a nuanced conversation. It's not black and white. Um, but what do you think? Sorry to interrupt. I'm just, you keep saying like a dietary pattern and we're, we're throwing these words around. And I know that a lot of people when they hear the word diet, they're, they're instantly, sure not triggered, but they, they 
people imply the word diet, it, it implies restriction or it implies... Thanks to the uh, multi-billion dollar weight loss industry. They've ruined the they've word. They've commercialized the word, yeah. And rightfully so. There are people that are triggered by the word and I get it. It's been, the word has been hijacked. <laughs> it's been taken out of context. And we now see diet, we see this stigma attached to it. And I think when you're using diet as an adjective, dieting, as an adjective, then I agree that it's it's not doing anyone favors. It's not a great way to use the term. It's not very helpful. It leads to a poor relationship with food, leads to starting and stopping as opposed to thinking about a lifelong change. The Greek Latin origin of the word diet, dieta, I've, I've no doubt not done that correctly for any of the Greek or uh, um, listeners and perhaps someone can send me a voice note on Instagram and let me know how to say that because I'm sure I'll say it again. Uh, but the, the Greek origin uses that word to describe a manner of living. It's the habitual, not just food, it, it actually describes everything that you do habitually from exercise and whatnot. But the food component is the foods that you are habitually eating on a day-to-day basis. It's not about jumping on something for seven days and jumping off. So I just think with diet, use it as a noun, go back to its original, the intention behind the word originally. And if you're using it in that context, I have no problem with it. I agree. People are are abandoning the word and and saying way of eating instead of diet. It's an anti-diet culture. It's anti-diet. But I get that. So that is, I'm with that. I'm with the fact that they're against the yo-yo diet and the jump on and off 100%. I just am not convinced that the word diet needs to be removed from our vocabulary when it's used correctly. Yeah, 100%. The context in which you use it matters and also the the message you use it alongside matters. We love quick fixes and magic pills and absolutes. And that's why there's so many diet books out there. Like really, does the world need another diet book? I thought about that long and hard. Um, and that's why this is not really a diet book. It's I'm talking about a way of living. I don't, I'm not, I'm not proposing something that you just jump on and, and lose some kilos and, and jump off of, not, not at all. So to your point of what is a dietary pattern, it is the habitual foods that you eat over time, over a long duration. And, you know, you, we can dive even deeper into good and bad foods and, and things like yeah. that, which is- I'd love to talk about is, that because I, I saw a quote the other day. This is to do with- uh, I think the pendulum has just swung the other way now. So people who are promoting healthy eating or quote unquote clean eating, there's now a group of people who are so opposed to those kinds of words that they, those words are offensive or triggering to, to certain people. And I saw this quote that I thought was really interesting. I'm paraphrasing here and I saw it on Instagram. I don't even know who, who it was by. So sorry, whoever, whoever said this, but it was, it was something along the lines of, Choosing not to have cookies in the house is not orthorexia, it's intelligent, right? And, and I think that orthorexia, again, has been this term that people are using. I, I want to be careful here. I, don't want to, I know it's a real thing, but I think that to, you know, to define orthorexia, essentially, it's an unhealthy relationship with healthy food, like obsessing over being healthy. It's always on your mind and always feeling as though your diet is not clean enough. It's not pure enough, you know, and, and you're right. That is a real problem 
for for some people. But but I think it's a fine line now because if you are plant based or or want to eat a, a very whole food, minimally processed diet, you can be labelled as I've been labelled as orthorexic when I think I have an extremely healthy relationship with a healthy diet. I, I don't. I definitely don't think I'm orthorexic. And I think that term is being thrown around. And now you're also seeing people who have a healthy relationship with unhealthy food. So, so we've got these two polarizing ends of this spectrum where you've got people like us who, who are plant-based and really focus on whole foods. And then you've got people who maybe do the, if it fits your macros, a flexible dieting, and they have a really healthy relationship. They don't feel guilt when they eat certain foods, whether they're junk food or processed food. The pendulum is swinging side to side. It's a hard one to get our head around. You know, and I actually think the, I don't want to say in the middle, but that's probably the easiest way of describing this is that I I think I land almost somewhere in the middle. You know, I I certainly don't take a hard line on quote unquote incorporating a little tiny bit of junk food in your diet or, you know, having a, a, a vegan ice cream cookie sandwich and, and and feeling guilt about it. No, not at all. You know, in fact, some of those foods will help you, some people, I want to be careful as well, because some some people can do the 100% whole food thing and maintain a very, very good relationship with their food. This None of this is black and white, right? A lot of this comes down to the individual. Um, and that's where working one-on-one with a dietitian, if you feel like maybe you do have a poor relationship with food and, and working through the strategies that are going to work best for you is is important and we can't really give a black and white answer here. But, you know, I have some examples in the book where I talk about, and I know I watch you eat, so I know that you have a very similar approach to this, I, th- I think. I, I talk about coconut oil, for example, not being the greatest of oils to cook regularly with, but I'm not going to lie, here and there, I'll have some sort of vegan dessert that has coconut oil in it and it's not the end of the world and I enjoy it. Um, So I think what's important, I still think we should have a good idea as to what are very health-promoting foods. I think that's really important and what are the foods that should make a foundation of a diet. Um, But I do think that there is also a sort of fine line to dance around it with regards to where it becomes too restrictive. And if someone does have a restrictive eating relationships, they can find themselves coming towards a vegan diet naturally just through restriction and restriction and restriction. So if there are dietitians listening, they'll be aware of that. Um, But we are talking about a smaller subset, a smaller group. Um, You know, I have a little box in the book about orthorexia just to help someone maybe identify if that is affecting them and to go and seek some some counsel with it. Um, but, you know, I, I see how you eat. Maybe do you want to share what your approach to this is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my diet has changed so much over the past few years with experimenting. I would say that my diet today is 99.9% whole food, plant-based. But when I do have the, the small things that sneak in, I'll I'll bring them into my diet in a way that I can extract more out of, say, a social circumstance. Like if if we go out for dinner and everybody's sharing a dessert and I know that it has a little bit of refined sugar and some coconut oil, whatever it is, I'm not 
going to be scared to have that mouthful or two. Just or a to, pizza with white flour. Correct. I mean, I, I'll taste a slice of pizza or I'll, I'll find, I'll give some room, some wiggle room in my diet for those kinds of things. I think that my case is a little bit different for people in that I have to check my blood glucose multiple times a day. I have to, you know, I get this objective feedback into what did that meal do to my blood glucose? And it's in real time. So actually, I'll tell you what happened last night. This is interesting. We went to uh, Treehouse, great restaurant. Heaps of plant-based options and like wholesome. We've eaten very well here. So good. The food last night was excellent. Vega Bond. Yeah. Yeah, that's also great. That was, you know, enormous for the community. <laughs> it was. So we went to Treehouse. We ordered six or seven large. It was know, five of us. Yeah. Five of us, main main dishes. Jimmy Halfcut. Jimmy Halfcut. He had dinner with us. Yeah, everyone was He's a character, him. isn't he? He's great. The way people look at him for the first time. I know. Catch half his beard and then see the other side and the, yeah. their jaw just drops. I had to give him a hug on both sides just to experience both sides of his yeah, face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had dinner, we had a beautiful meal. I usually don't eat pizza. And the reason why is because... I figured this out through personal experience, but I also have seen some pretty amazing scientific evidence and studies looking into this. When you combine a refined carbohydrate, like white flour, with fat, either from cheese, vegan cheese, olive oil, whatever it is, that combination can be very difficult to manage your blood glucose. And I, I figured this out the hard way when I would eat a pizza uh, after I was diagnosed, Two hours after my meal, my blood glucose level was quite good. It was in the normal range. However, five or six hours after my meal, I'd noticed that my blood sugar had spiked really high. Like the normal range is about four to six. It would be nudging 20. So I thought firstly that maybe it was the meal had sort of digested Later, so I had this delayed gastric emptying where I ate a bit too much. The food sat in the stomach. The insulin had already left my system and then my body digested the food and then all of a sudden it's 3, 4 a.m. or even earlier, 1 or 2 a.m. and my blood glucose is nearly 20. So it could be the delayed gastric emptying but also the, the way that the fat interferes with insulin sensitivity. And there's a great study that looked at this exact thing where they gave people a pizza people with type 1 diabetes, a pizza that was just a, a base without cheese. They gave their insulin dose, they checked how their body responded to it and they noticed that within two or three hours their blood glucose had a normal rise and came back into the normal range. They then gave the same pizza base with a large amount of saturated fat from cheese, dairy cheese. And saturated fat's going to be worse. Yes, saturated fat is definitely worse than the polyunsaturated fats. But these subjects needed 60% more insulin to keep their blood glucose back into the normal range and they had that delayed spike. So even in the study, they had this delayed spike and they actually required like a split dose of insulin. So they had to give some of the insulin up front and then more insulin, say one or two hours later, just to keep it in range. So you can just see how difficult it is. So going back to the reason why I even said this is last night, this is what happened to me. I had really good blood glucose when we got back from dinner. I went to bed. I checked my blood glucose before bed. I was 5.7 and I was super happy about this because whenever I eat out, I know there's a risk of having some roller coaster of blood glucose. Levels. How many times a day do you, do you check 
blood glucose. I still use the finger pricks, which is a little bit outdated now that everyone has. But like 10, 20 times. Yeah, about 15 times a day. So I did mine the other day. Yeah, big brave boy, huh? Got a little finger prick there. So good to good to know what you go through. It is good to know. It's interesting. Um, so last night I went to bed at five point seven, and I woke up at three a.m. and my blood glucose had spiked really high, like uncomfortably high. I felt like I needed to go to the toilet because your kidneys are trying to filter the glucose out. I, f- I just didn't. F- I was having a restless sleep, and I think that's exactly what happened. So I ate all these foods that I hadn't cooked at home. Obviously, we we didn't out. I didn't know exactly what was in them. It was quite a bit of olive oil on certain foods. So coming back to that relationship with food, I definitely find that it's harder for people who have this feedback all the time of what's my blood glucose doing, how much insulin do I and need? And it's very important though, you have yeah. to do that, right? Your your brain is essentially now your pancreas. Pretty you have much. to process all this information and you choose when and how much insulin to administer. But for me, it was worth it. That, that whole experience for the social uh, experience that we had it was worth it. I would do it again because I enjoyed my evening. We had a good laugh. We were out with friends. It was a good vibe. So that's the sort of like the tug of war that that, that I personally go through on, on a, you know, not necessarily daily basis, but quite frequently. It's like, I want to enjoy my life. I want to have fun with my friends and my community and bond with people. I also want to be really healthy, but I don't think that you have to just choose one or the other. I really think we need to have a bit of a push and pull Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. And it's going to be individual, right? I think I've been wrong on this before, but I think some some people will do really well, for example, counting their calories and they'll rave about it and they'll say how much it's improved their lifestyle and you can't take that away from that person, right? And then someone else may be much better, particularly mentally, when they adopt a, an intuitive sort of eating approach, right? And there's, so there's all these different tools out there that... I think can be extremely beneficial depending on the individual. Where This is where it gets hard to, to sort of make a blanket recommendation. I think none of these should take away from the fact that we do understand what the optimal characteristics of a dietary pattern are and that by definition, a dietary pattern is the habitual foods consistent over a time. One single food shouldn't derail you and derail your, your mood. So I'm on board that message and you know, that's kind of where I land on all of this. I've got a question for you because we're talking about measuring blood glucose. And there are a lot of people that are not living with diabetes who are measuring their blood glucose after meals and using that as a way of kind of defining how healthful that that meal is. I've got some concerns with that approach. You know, what do you think about that? Great question. I've been thinking about this a lot. So just for some context, people with type 1 diabetes wear a device called a CGM, Continuous Glucose Monitor. It sits in your skin and it measures your your interstitial fluid, which gives you an indication of what your blood glucose is doing. It's not measuring blood glucose necessarily, it's interstitial fluid, which has about a 15-minute delay. So if your blood glucose is X, your interstitial fluid will be 15 minutes behind that. That's, That's one that you attach 
You're talking yeah. about one that you attach like to your shoulder. Correct. Or it's a sensor you, you most people put in like sort of the back of their arm near their tricep. It's, it's reading into an app or something. It's continuously feeding into your your app, telling you what your blood glucose is in real time. Okay. Fantastic device for people with diabetes. Makes managing it easier. It can help you improve your your overall blood glucose control. It can help you with figuring out how much insulin you need. It's just the, the, the studies are clear how good it is for improving long-term health and diabetes-specific biomarkers. But you don't use that regularly, right? I've used it on and off over the years. Uh, I don't use it regularly. I, I do enjoy the, the data and the, the feedback and the trends and patterns that you get from it. But for me, being attached to, to a device, having a sensor in my arm all the time or having an insulin pump attached to me, it's, it's a psychological barrier. I, I like being free and bare and I like to, and I'm managing really well with insulin injections and finger bricks. And do they stay attached well, like during, you? I mean, you exercise like two hours a day. Well, that's why I don't wear them. I found that they came off quite easily. The adhesive just isn't sticky enough. and They'll probably get better. They are getting better. And if you're surfing a lot or going to the gym, or I'm, I sweat a lot at the gym, they, they do come You're a off. sweaty man. I'm so, I sweat a lot. You're in the top 5% of sweaters, I reckon. Right? Yeah. Especially this gym in Byron. It's like a yeah. sweat box. Yeah. <laughs> Zero, it's so humid. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I found that they fall off quite a lot. And I know a lot of people also have this experience, even people far less sweaty than me. Um, so anyway, great device for people with diabetes but now I'm noticing general pop, so everybody out there who is health-focused or fitness-focused wearing these CGMs. And I'm torn because on one level, I commend them for being so in tune and wanting to know about their health and caring so much. I'm like, that's awesome that you care about your health. But the other side of it is there's zero evidence that flatlining your blood glucose all day is better for your health than somebody who has normal rises and falls. It just doesn't, it's not evidence-based for the general population to be wearing a CGM, especially it's, it's like a pharmaceutical device. Like it's, it's not a simple thing to insert. Ins well, it is easy to insert, but at the end of the day, you've got something in your arm all the time and the data you're getting, they are then changing the, what they eat, when they eat. But they're making the assumption that a spike in glucose is harmful, even when that is within this sort of normal exactly. physiological range, exactly. which is the problem. So the assumption is any spike is bad and they've almost gamified it to the point where they're competing with one another to go, look how flat my line is. And I've seen it, I, I, do, I see type 1 di uh, diabetics. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. So the gamification becomes about how well can they flatline it, but that shouldn't be the goal, right? Well, I, I think if you're chasing that, Good luck to you. Keep that energy for the rest of your life. It is exhausting. You know why? Because it's so unnatural it's to have a flat line forever. It's so hard to achieve. I have achieved that and it takes a lot of work. I did the best. The best flat lines I ever had was when I was on a very low carb diet, I'll admit. Keto, the certain phase. That's why it is so attractive, right? And most of the people who are promoting it now are low carb keto guys, obviously, because... What, what's happened is we've categorized carbohydrates as the cause of spikes. Therefore, carbs and spikes are bad. Just terrible, right? It's not true. You, you need to have this normal fluctuation in your blood glucose over the day as long as it's not chronically elevated. But if someone is really poor with their management, right, and they are getting these big excursions, big elevations, would you agree that there is a 
person who will do better on a low-carb diet just to completely get them as close to flatline as possible and they don't necessarily have to worry about the fact that their sort of uh, insulin injection schedule is is not great? 100%. I'm by no means anti-low-carb. I'm not anti-keto. I, I think it is a potential tool. I think it can work, but you, we have to realize what the long-term I- impact is of, of eating in that way. Yeah, and I... I think if you were inclined to do that, you'd want to do it in a more plant-predominant way. Exactly. Those two things are not dichotomous. You don't have to be low-carb and animal-heavy or high-carb and plant-based. You can actually merge them. You can be... I think that's the great thing, knowing that there is more than one option, right? That's true. You can do the low-carb thing. And also, there's there's not a great deal of evidence to say that a high-carb plant-predominant diet is better long-term than a low-carb plant-predominant right, diet. Right. So it is it is nice for anyone listening to know, hey, if keto is your thing, awesome, and you're getting the best results, awesome. But the more of the fat and protein that you can get from plant-based sources, the the better for your long-term health and some of the complications that come from from di- uh, living with diabetes. There's also this false idea that you have to choose a diet and stick to it forever. Like you, you can go between them. You can have a phase of a lower carb plant-based diet and then you can go into a higher carb plant-based diet. You can change your macronutrients. You don't have to just choose a label and stick to it and box yourself forever. I've, I've fluctuated even over the, the last two and a half years as a plant-based, uh, eating a plant-based diet. My macronutrients have tr- changed a lot. I do have periods where I'm lower carb. And for people with diabetes, this can be really helpful because it, it does mean less insulin, which means less risk of having some bad lows or having that roller coaster of blood glucose. So it is a tool. We don't need to be triggered by the labels. And, I, and I'm, again, I'm not anti-keto, but I do think that these proponents of keto and CGMs are creating a narrative that is not science-based. I think it is appealing and interesting. People look at it and go, hey, that's really interesting. Did you see that guy's keto and his blood sugar's flat and look what happened when he ate an, an apple? But the, the point is, is that when you chronically eat a low-carb or ketogenic diet, you're eating yourself into a state of glucose intolerance. So if you want to stick with a, a keto diet forever, you might get some great results. You might actually reduce certain complications of diabetes but then you better be careful not to eat carbs every now and then because you're going to see these spikes. So you've got to figure out how to use these tools, how long you can use them for, what context. Glad that you spoke about the macronutrient thing, you know, and, and it's okay to, to go between them. And we actually don't know that one's better than the other if we're just talking about, you know, health in general, even weight loss. Like if you look at the, the low-fat and the high-fat randomized controlled data studies, yeah, the, the amount of weight loss at the end of the day, the difference between a low-fat and high-fat diet is clinically meaningless. It's not meaningful data and what seems to be most important is how well someone can adhere to that macronutrient ratio. And to achieve a deficit of like a slight calorie deficit. Yeah, long-term. Uh, you know, so in, in making this shift, which is part three of the book, uh, I have one of my principles that I have, I have eight principles there. And one of them is customization is key and adapting to a way of plant-based eating, be it plant-predominant or plant-exclusive. Adapt to it in a way that works best for you and you feel best. 
because it's going to be a little bit different for everyone. I can, I can tell you the food groups that typically throughout the data, whether it's epidemiological studies or RCTs, lead to the best outcomes. But you as the individual then need to navigate that space and you'll land on a, a dietary pattern, a diet, a manner of living that has you feeling the best, right? And, you know, that, that could end up being a high-fat plant predominant or exclusive diet and it may be the exact opposite and we need to get past this idea of, of things like fat is bad and fat is dangerous. You know, it's, it's the type of fat that matters and, and fat is an umbrella term and unsaturated fats are not something that we should fear. Same goes for, for carbohydrates, umbrella term. You know, there's different types of carbohydrates and unrefined carbohydrates are incredibly health promoting. Often we see carbohydrates in general, particularly from the low carb sort of keto community, demonized. But we can't be equating the, the carbohydrates in a Mars bar to those found in, you know, a, a banana or the, the carbohydrates in jelly beans to the carbohydrates in black beans. So th this is one of the problems I have with people wearing the CGM who don't have diabetes is it's a very easy way to demonize carbohydrates because now they have proof, quote unquote, that the carbohydrates are causing spikes in blood glucose when really it's you have to look at the context of their diet. When you are ketogenic or fat adapted, you are a good fat burner and your glucose tolerance is way worse. When you say fat burner, I, I want to clarify that you're good at, at utilizing the fats in your diet. Yes. It doesn't mean it's a magic diet for burning your body fat. Correct. Just like any diet, you need to be in a calorie deficit. Yeah, exactly. So I think carbs have been demonized enough in general as being a macronutrient that makes people get fat, but now it's being demonized as a macronutrient that causes diabetes and pre-diabetes and insulin resistance. That's not the case. It's not true. It's not true. The, the context of... of what you're eating those carbs alongside and what the dietary pattern, the dieta, <laughs> looks like really matters. It's so important to understand this. And I just, yeah, if you're thinking of getting a CGM, you don't really, you probably don't need it unless you have type 1 diabetes <laughs> right now anyway. Where should we spin to from here? Well, look, on the topic of fat loss and, and weight loss, Obviously, being an exercise physiologist, I'm interested in what role exercise plays in that. We, we've been talking about this on and off for the last few days, just at the beach and wherever. I think that people have misunderstood the role of exercise and how it fits into the fat loss equation. People think that the sole purpose of exercise or, or working out is to burn calories. And, you know, we've kind of been discussing how complicated this really is. And of course it burns calories, but the weight that we give it, we might be over-exaggerating its, its uh, impact. Yeah, and it has the potential to distract us from what matters most. And, you know, there's that saying, and this is not my saying, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll frame this how Ricky Gervais frames some of his jokes, <laughs> that you can't outrun a bad diet. It's not my saying, someone else's. Um, but there is a, an element of truth to that. Right, and you know we know, for example, if if you were to exercise for thirty or forty five minutes, it would be incredibly easy to to consume the same calories that you've just burnt in a snack 
particularly within the current food environment that we live live in where there's hyper palatable foods everywhere that are exploiting our our biology our biology that you know allowed us to survive in times of famine and and also you know we were chatting the other day when you exercise say you're on the treadmill and you burn 300 calories or whatever it says you have to factor in that you would have burned some calories anyway just through living. So it might be, call it 150, 200 calories that you've expended through that exercise. But then also your body will adjust metabolic processes throughout all of your systems, whether it's your immune system, um, you know, other systems of, of our body will adjust to preserve energy. So the net effect come the end of the day or the end of the week is different to what you would expect based on looking at the screen on the treadmill, right? So from a weight loss perspective, I still think exercise is obviously very, very important, particularly for cardiovascular health and mental health. But the biggest lever that we can pull is the energy that we're consuming. And that can be really difficult in, in the food environment, as I said, that is really set up for us to overconsume. You know, 42% of our calories here in Australia are coming from ultra-processed foods. That's crazy. It's only half of our diet. It's 850-odd calories a day. And these foods, they are designed by food scientists to, to achieve a certain bliss point. You know, the perfect balance and ratio of fat and sugar and salt and, and whatnot so that you just want to keep going and you don't actually feel truly satiated. And Kevin Hall, metabolic researcher who, you know, is performing some very eloquently designed research trials in, in metabolic wards, which is where you lock people into a chamber and you know every single thing that they eat. It's not like the, uh, the randomized controlled trials where you just tell people one, one group to do one diet and the other to do the, uh, the other diet and send them out into the wild and just hope that they adhere to it. No, this is lock them into an inpatient hospital setting and you know exactly the food that you're giving them. You know the macronutrient ratio, you know the amount of salt, you know the amount of fiber, everything. And, and he performed a study which was really interesting. He's, he's done a number of, of great trials, but one of them was comparing ultra-processed foods to processed foods. Uh, sorry, ultra-processed foods to unprocessed foods, I should say. And... Not only did was he comparing those two different types of foods, but also he matched the macronutrients. Because a lot of the time you would think, okay, well, maybe ultra-processed foods, they, they contain less fiber and more salt and sugar, you know, so maybe that's why people are over-consuming them. But he matched fat, protein, carbohydrates, fiber, salt, and sugar. He matched all of those. So between the ultra-processed and the processed diets, you were getting the same nutrient makeup. Now, Interestingly, in this trial, so it was a crossover trial. So, so Drew, for example, you would come in and do one of the diets for two weeks and then the other diet for two weeks. But people would come in and do them in different orders. So they were, they were sort of randomized to the allocation of the diet order. And they found that on average, people consumed 500 calories more per day on the ultra-processed food diet, even though all of those things were matched. And... There were, there were sort of two main theories or explanations that the researchers gave in the paper, Kevin Hall and his team. And one of them was that 
people eating the ultra-processed foods were able to consume them much, much faster, right? Because per bite, they were more calorie-dense, ultra-processed foods, the volume is smaller, right? And when you think about this, think about like if you sit down and you eat and you're sort of distracted and you've got TV on or you're watching something on your phone, how quickly you eat. Exactly. And also when you frame it like that, an extra 500 calories a day, if you were to try out exercise those 500 calories every single day, imagine how, much, how many Ks you'd have to do on the treadmill or the bike or lifting weights or whatever, the incidental physical activity. Tough. And then your body's still going to downregulate other processes. Right, because your body is trying to maintain homeostasis. It wants to find it at your sort of set point, your body fat set point that you are going to be the healthiest at. I think that's the key thing for people to realize is that your body really doesn't want you to lose a lot of weight. Yeah, and, and you don't want to be too lean either. You don't want to be too overweight. There is this sort of sweet spot, which which speaks to how difficult it is to sort of train those, so train extra hard to burn off those 500 a day. It's just not sustainable long-term, very difficult. But I'm, obviously I'm not saying exercise is worthless. I love exercise more than anyone. I'm an exercise physiologist. I use exercise as a tool in my diabetes management that's been incredible. Of, of course, nutrition and exercise are sort of like the, the two main pillars or, or as, as you like to say, the biggest levers we can pull. There's a story I go back to. I've, I've told this before, but uh, I just, I, I, I love sharing this story with people because I really think that it'll help to frame exercise in a new way. Uh, it, it, similar to how we've just spoken about the word diet implying a certain thing, I think that exercise implies structure, sets, reps, you, you know, show up to the gym, the environment you're in. It's very, the word does imply certain things to certain people. Movement, on the other hand, is a lot of a more a freeing word that implies less structure, could be play, could be sport, could be incidental, could be with, playing with your dog, whatever it is. So I think that it's important to sort of talk about those two words separately as well because exercise can have a bad rap. People fear the word in, in certain ways. I know people, some people hate exercise. It doesn't mean you don't have to do it. But the importance of, let's say, movement goes so far beyond burning calories that people don't realize. And my wake-up call for this was the day after being diagnosed with diabetes. Thank the heavens above that I had this, this life-changing moment because it taught me the importance of exercise goes so far beyond the calories we can count or offsetting the energy we, we intake. I had just been diagnosed with diabetes. I hadn't give, been given insulin yet. Uh, I, I told this story on our first episode. It was a long time ago though. So for new listeners, I think this might be a new time, first time they've heard it. Uh, I, I hadn't been given insulin yet because it's, it's a very dangerous hormone to use if you don't know how to use it properly. You've got to get the dose just perfect or else you can end up in a coma or, or, or even die from overdosing on it. So I was told to go and sort of live my life how I usually would and just track my blood glucose so that we could then later give insulin to match the, 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 you know, the fluctuations in my daily uh, glucose levels. So I had my usual breakfast. I ate a, a carbohydrate-rich meal and my glucose shot up to 25, something like that. Huge elevation. I was not happy about this. I was you know, really, really upset to see a number like that. I then went and did a workout uh, and I, I just enjoyed a 60-minute sweat sesh. I trained functional, like full body compound movements, 
spent about an hour in the gym. After my workout, I checked my blood glucose, expecting honestly to see a 25. But the, the number that came up on this glucose meter like shocked me. Mm. Burning up that glycogen. Not just the glycogen, but the glucose in my bloodstream had been soaked up by my muscles and my blood glucose went back to normal. I was, it was about six, five, six. So you saw it as a tool. That was the day that I was like, exercise is so much more than a calorie burner. It's a tool. I mean, the calorie burner thing really has hijacked exercise. I would say, honestly, I would say forget about it. It's a byproduct. You know what we haven't even spoken about as well is the fact that when you do a lot of exercise, one of the other things that inadvertently happens is you do less neat. So you do less incidental walking. You're, that's your body trying to preserve energy. If you, if you ever speak to a bodybuilder when they're preparing for a competition, a couple weeks out, if they need to go to the toilet, they might go, oh, I can't be bothered getting up. I'll wait a little bit longer. Like that is the extent to which the body slows down its processes and makes us lazy because it doesn't want to waste energy. So, And it also drives hunger a little bit. So you'll end up sort of balancing out some of that energy that you've burned will be offset by the fact that your body slows down other processes. You move a bit less typically. You eat a little bit more food. Um, but also to the point of bodybuilders, I know so many bodybuilders who ha have got so lean and basically done no cardio. So it, it does show they do it all through dieting. Yeah, exactly. And that's a case example. It just shows you how when you get those that, that intake of calories correct, you can lose huge amounts of body fat and, and completely change your body composition. That's a good point. I, I never thought about that one. So to maybe to, to give some practical tips, I guess, from a, a nutrition intake, I talk in the book a lot of, around the benefit of consuming whole plants that are very, very fiber rich is that they will keep you full, satiated on less calories naturally. We know that from, again, Kevin, one of Kevin Hall's great studies and I talk about it in the book. And there are other things that you can look to in your diet. For example, protein, while it's not the sort of magic bullet when it comes to weight loss that sometimes we make it out to be, protein does require a little bit more energy to utilize by the body. There's a thermic effect, right? So there is an advantage to eating a, a high fiber diet that has a lot of whole plant foods and making sure that protein rich foods, be it legumes or, or you know, tofu and tempeh or whatever are in there and you are consuming those regularly if weight loss is a goal that you have um, or if building and maintaining muscle is a goal, it's also important to, to have those protein rich plant foods. Or if you're, you're aging and you have that age-related sarcopenia where you Definitely. muscle atrophies naturally over time. Yeah, that's, that's something I spoke about at the retreat on the weekend is I think there's almost, there's, there's extremes on protein. There's, there's, there's a protein obsession. You need, you need two, pound, two grams per pound. And then you have the other side, which is like, you know, protein is going to kill your kidneys. And you know, A, the type of protein matters so much right? We know that plant protein is so incredibly health promoting. Don't be scared of it. And also we know that when someone gets to the age of 60 and over, they require a little bit more protein. And it's a very, very important for keeping your strength, for uh, preventing osteopenia, osteoporosis. These age-related diseases, they, they happen, they're prevalent. And protein is one nutrient that is 
particularly helpful for hopefully reducing your risk of, of having those and experiencing falls and whatnot. And, and so as someone does get to, you know, late 50s, 60s or is already older than that, I think it becomes, again, you don't need to obsess over it, but it becomes important to focus in on that, that protein-rich group of plant foods like legumes and, uh, you know, lentils and black beans and, and things like that and making sure you're consuming them regularly throughout the day. Uh, and then, I mean, there are so many other sort of tips around how, how to create a lifestyle that will promote weight loss. Again, if that's your goal, um, you know, I put up a, a study on Instagram today, one that we spoke about. This one's really interesting. John Hopkins University, they looked at how many times people cook dinner at home. You know, remember that study we spoke about? This is amazing, but it's just, it, it's, it is common sense, but it's amazing to see it put into a study and it's actually quite frightening to see the, the results. They looked at people who, who cooked at home once or less per week versus those that cooked at home six or seven times. So they are looking at the extremes, definitely. Some people might fall in the middle, a lot of people. Um, but they found people over the, over the course of the week were eating I think it was around 120 odd calories extra a day, or 700 odd calories a week. Uh, over the that that were eating out. If they were eating out, they were consuming around 700 odd extra calories a week. I think it was even more, near a thousand a week, wasn't it? Yeah, I might be misquoting that. I think it was 120, 130 a day. Yeah, you're right, which is about a thousand a week. Oh, so a thousand yeah. a week, and that's right because we we worked out it. So it was a bit over 52,000 calories a year, which was the equivalent of over 200 Mars bars or seven kilograms of butter. And that's an easy thing that we can think about. And it makes sense when you're cooking at home, you know everything that's going into that food and there's not, there's not a lot of hidden fats and, and salt, uh, it's not salt, sorry, sugars, I should say, and salt, but that's not, that's not contributing to calories. So that's just a very simple thing for us to come back to and, 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 and realize, yeah, of course, the more home-cooked meals we have, the more likelihood we will be consuming less calories and feeling satiated at the same time. Um, but there are, there are a bunch of other tips in the book. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. One of the things about a plant-based diet that I think is so beneficial for people is that you'd be surprised how much food you can actually eat without having to think about or, or count the calories or the macros. Just, just eating intuitively and eating the foods that you enjoy you don't have to really be scared of overeating because it is quite difficult to overeat on, on calories. It is because of the calorie density difference between animal products and plant foods. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't some plant foods that are high density, but they tend to be foods that you're not eating in, in huge volumes, like nut butters. If you have an appropriately planned meal that is you know, diverse in, in the foods that are on the plate, it's unlikely it's going to be a huge hit of calories. And we're talking about calories a lot. And the reason we are is because at the, at the end of the day, whether you count them or not. They matter. Yeah. They matter. The laws of thermodynamics are true. Calories in, calories out. But I don't think it needs to be front of mind. I think it is something that you can achieve incidentally. I mean, our, our 
our ancestors didn't count calories. They did live in a different food environment. So I understand why some people resort to counting calories. But I think if you can understand the food environment and you can then see how that environment is set up for you to fail and you can set up your food environment in your household for success. These are things I talk about in the book and, and a lot of the forces at play from you know, transnational food companies and, and how they want to operate in under-regulated markets and you know, are, are the reason we consume 42% of our calories from ultra-processed foods. Um, but yeah, I think that calories matter we don't have to count them though. One of the one of the the other reasons I think that whole plant foods are great for for weight loss if if someone's looking to lose weight is that because of the food volume, you tend to take a little longer to get through that meal. And time is satiating in, in itself, right? Um, and you know the 80% rule, if you if you sort of if you try and finish your meal when you you're 80% full, usually in 20, 30 minutes, you'll be completely full. So there's some advantages there for, for plants that, that help in, in that regard. I think mindfulness is actually, we kind of have spoken about it, but particularly important, sitting down and uh, clearing the distractions, you know, looking at the food, going through that meal slowly is huge in terms of not just weight loss, but also digestion. Like have you, you, you would know, every, a lot of people listening would know if you scoff your food down and you're distracted, you're much more likely to feel a little bloated or a little upset in the stomach. For sure. You, do you get that? Mate, I, I'm so, so conscious of being mindful when I eat. Uh, again, going back to my diabetes, if I do eat a meal really quickly and I eat too much volume, the digestion process slows down and it doesn't, uh, match my insulin curve and then I have this high blood glucose later. It could be the exact same foods eaten slower and maybe to 85% full and I'll have a great glucose response. So I'm very mindful and then I'm super mindful when I eat even like dark chocolate you've seen. <laughs> I get one square and I eat that square as if it's the last piece of chocolate on earth. I enjoy every second of it, no distractions and I, I if I do that, I get the same joy out of that than I would if I'd mindlessly ate three rows of chocolate. So I'm definitely mindful when I eat. We've been talking about weight loss a lot, but when you, when you think about the role that a healthy body weight plays in overall chronic disease risk and comorbidities, it is very important. Like being skinny or that's not really what we're trying to say here. Like what we're trying to say, because there's, there's a movement, right? Healthy at any size. People, people have really thought that you know, we're shaming people who are fat and, we're, and we need to be talking about being a healthy body weight and all this stuff. But the reason we're focusing on body weight a lot is because it is linked and associated to other conditions. So it's, it's, it's not the goal to be skinny for aesthetics. It's, it's really about how, how your body weight can impact your physiology, your metabolism, your risk for other diseases. And you would know better than anyone that there is science to show this. I mean, there is there's clear science that if you're overweight or categorized as obese, that you are at increased risk of certain diseases. For example, being overweight places someone at three times the risk of developing type two diabetes. Being obese places someone at seven times the risk of developing type two diabetes. I do want to make it clear though that you can be overweight and be obese and not develop chronic disease. And equally speaking, you can be a normal BMI, quote unquote, normal BMI and develop chronic disease. So it's not a guarantee. Um, and I do also think society places too much pressure on being thin 
and achieving an unrealistic body size. And that there are going to be differences in naturally in what someone's you know, point of equilibrium where their body lands is going to differ from, from person to person a little bit. So there should, we should be more accepting in that regard. We should be less focused on putting people into a box of what healthy looks like you know, in terms of being stick thin. I don't think that's the goal here. I also think that if somebody is exercising daily, moving a lot, eating a predominantly plant-based diet and they're still overweight, then that is absolutely fine. Like that is, for me, that is the sort of healthy in any size. It, it, that's how you would embody it, in my opinion, is, is you still lead a healthy lifestyle. And if you are, if you do happen to be overweight for whatever reason, you, our genetics are different, our, our circumstances are different. As long as you're doing your best to be healthy in as many aspects as possible, I take my hat off. I, I have zero judgment on what you actually look like. We're talking about risk though, and none of this is about what someone looks like. And I, I think that when it gets to that point, that's fat shaming and there's a problem with that. Um, we're talking about risk here and, and, and caring about people because they may be at increased risk of developing a disease and educating about that. And then people will connect with that and do what they want to do with their own body. That's kind of where I land on it and I'm with you in terms of you can incorporate all of these aspects of health, you know, exercise and mindfulness and, and whatnot and, and, and you might not be the normal BMI but you're still living a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, there, there still may be things that you can do to, to promote weight loss for sure um, but it, this is a very a nuanced conversation, I think, it needs to be approached with really good bedside manner. Um, we're talking science and statistics and risks, but we're also talking about real life people with emotions and people that have been shamed and had trauma. Uh, so, you know, it needs to be done in the right manner. You know, so I guess just to recap any of this back to your original point, we didn't even intend to talk about weight loss. It kind of just went there. Um, but the, the, the key point that I guess we were making overall is how to think about exercise and, and movement and then the role that food plays in terms of our body weight. I do have a question for you about, uh, about the book. So we've sort of covered that it's, it's not a diet book. It's not a start date, end date. It is the why. Why would you think somebody would benefit from making changes, the changes that you recommend in the book? So you, you state why we're confused. Then we say, then you go into, we say, I feel like I say that is why I wrote the book with you. Yeah. It's just that we've had so many conversations. I just know the structure of the book and what we've gone through. We've had a lot. You and you and uh, Jeremy have helped me a lot, workshopped a lot of ideas. Jezza and his grammar skills as well, of course. So you, yeah, you, you frame the book in a way that is, why are we confused? What does the science say? And then the practical tips and how to, how to sort of forge a diet that will lead to health and longevity. Who is this book? Who are you writing to? Who's that target, that bullseye? Who's the book for is what I want to know. And also if your book, say, landed in the hands of a carnivore or a keto proponent or a New York Times bestseller who promotes a, a low-carb animal-heavy diet, what do you think their reaction will be to your book? Do you think it'll it potentially have the, the ability to change them? Or is this book intended for people who are already receptive to change? They're on their way. Maybe they just need that, that moment, that light bulb moment to set things off. So there's, there's a lot in there. Uh, the book 
has been written for for different different people, and I feel like different people will get more out of different sections. If you're listening to this, and this idea of a plant predominant diet is just so new to you, then this book is for you. You will you I will walk you through why it is that you eat the diet you eat, how that has been shaped, what forces are at play, why that is not serving you best for your health, for your family's health, why if you love your life and want to live more years, you may want to consider changing that. I'll also explain to you why we should care about the environment and now more than ever you know, on the crux of our population has exploded and we're building to 11 billion people by 2050. This is something we all need to become educated on and do better in. The book is also written for someone who's already eating in a plant-predominant or plant-exclusive manner, but wants to better inform themselves with some of this information and the latest science, be it just for themselves or be it for them to help educate their family and their friends and then for everyone to optimize that diet. So understanding the science and the why, that's great, but making that leap and then being able to tweak little bits and increase your confidence because you have the knowledge to make these changes is crucial so that they're sustainable and you don't fall back to the sort of comfort way of eating that is the normal way of eating for you because let's face it some of the information in this book particularly if you're not eating this way now it will challenge you and that's intentional I want it to challenge you and I, I think for you to reap the benefits that are on offer you have to be prepared to be challenged to then look at the the science objectively and each person will connect with that and it will land with each person differently. And when they've connected with it, they will be empowered to make the changes that feel right for them at that time. And for some people, those changes may be small steps that play out over years. And for other people, they may feel empowered to completely change their manner of living tomorrow. And that's okay, because it all depends on who you are, what's your circumstance, what's your family circumstance like. So I haven't written this with one sort of 30-day plan or one, one outcome for everyone. The information's in there and this is what I believe is the best available science that we have today. Take that information into your own life and do with it as you will what makes sense for you. I love it. I'm not going to let you dodge the second part of the question though. Well, I mean, my... my Let's say somebody's identity is intertwined with an ideology or belief around what our food should be and, and, and a very animal-heavy, ketogenic, carnivore even, gets a hold of this book. How, how would you expect them to react to it? I would first say to you, if you are eating a paleo or a carnivore diet... I take my hat off to you for stepping away from the norm. You're prepared to do that. You have made a decision to not just follow what society does and accept that as the best route. But as I said earlier around challenge, this challenge is going to be greater for you. This challenge is going to be greater for you. If you are prepared to look at the information objectively, 
I think you will feel empowered to make changes. Now, that's going to be a case by case, whether people are willing to look at it objectively. As you said, that can be very, very difficult to not approach something with a confirmation bias. You know, speaking directly to the carnivore diet or to to the sort of low-carb paleo, high animal-based diets, I think we, we can't dispute the fact that people have improved their health by moving to those diets. My concern is that there is no evidence to suggest that those improvements are anything but short-term and that long-term those dietary patterns time and time again with the foods that are featured in those lead to poor health outcomes. So if we come back to the diseases that are affecting our society today, these diseases that we want to avoid, we want to push back, we want to experience more years without, ideally, they have very long latency periods. That means they're bubbling away under the surface for years, decades. And we understand the characteristics of a diet that increase the risk of those bubbling away. And that's very, very clear. And I outline that in the book. And it's also why the major guidelines, the medical guidelines that are formed by committees of people, be it the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, the Endocrinology Association, the, the American Cancer Society, any of these, they, they have guidelines, position statements formed by committees, groups of people who all have different personal diets, all coming to this from a different direction, but all landing in the same place in that they recommend plant-based dietary patterns. So the evidence that I have put in this book is the very best evidence. If you are truly an objective person who does not deny science and believes in science, the information will connect with you. Now, I can't make someone look at the world through my eyes. I can't make someone want to believe science and be objective. It's up to, up to the reader. So I would say, yes, someone who is adopting a, a carnivore or a paleo diet right now, I want them to read my book. I didn't write my book for people that are already doing the perfect plant-based diet. You know, I want those people to read it. And hey, if for whatever reason they can find higher quality science, share it with me. <laughs> you've read, what, 1,500 studies? Well, you've included 1,500 studies worth of, of references in the, in the book. I can only imagine how many hours you've spent reading studies, analyzing them, looking at the protocols, the subjects, cross-checking the conclusions with, with not only your own take on it, but you've leveraged some phenomenal you know, world-leading doctors and scientists. When I think of this book, I think about an evidence-based, science-based approach to not only one's health, but a future for, for our planet. And one of the biggest concerns I have with certain other diets, like the carnivore diet, is I just, I don't see a positive outcome for the future of our, our planet. I don't see it as an environmental solution, a climate solution. If anything, it's, it's and I'm not afraid to say this, it's a very selfish approach to, to, to living. And selfish is a word that can be, you know, you can change between self-love and selfish depending on how you change your, your life. But in, in certain cases, when, when people are promoting an anim, a very animal-heavy diet in a world where we know that the level of animal suffering is already beyond extreme and the resources it takes to 
keep these animals on the planet and then feed them to human beings and the, the energy yield that we get out of these these animals, it just doesn't sound like a solution going forward. And it also, if everyone were, were to adopt these diets, who knows what this world would look like? I mean, it's completely unsustainable and impossible to achieve. If you, if you aren't performing mental gymnastics to believe that grass-fed beef is a solution to climate change, which you have to do to believe that, you know, based on the evidence... And people will have heard all the experts come on my show. If you truly believe that holistic grazing is the answer to climate change, you are performing some serious mental gymnastics to get to that point. Some serious mental gymnastics. The, the data is so overwhelmingly in favor of consuming whole plant foods, as many as possible, to lower your environmental footprint be it for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, be it for freeing up land, improving biodiversity, using less water. That is case closed. It's checkmate. We have that information. So I think if you understand that information and you're promoting the opposite, it's irresponsible in many ways. Where, where this does get a little bit grey is people who have used the opposite, so say a carnivore approach to, be it anecdotal, to completely put their depression, say, into remission. Let's think of someone like Jordan Peterson. So we can't discount the fact that his experience on a carnivore diet was able to get him off his, say, the, the antidepressant uh, medication and reach a state of health. We don't know categorically it is the dietary changes. It could be other changes in his lifestyle. It's not a clinical trial. These anecdotes are, are not valid, you know. So... Yes, he was eating a, a carnivore diet and he had that outcome, but what else was he doing and could he have achieved that with a diet that had more whole plants? Right, right. I mean, that's why we have science to answer that question. That's why we have peer-reviewed randomized controlled trials who, that look into this. Some things are very hard to, to replicate in science that people are doing in the real world, which makes it extremely difficult. But what I was going to say is, Whilst we can't discount his experience or, or anybody's experience on a carnivore diet and achieving health outcomes that they're proud of or makes them feel better, for me, the responsibility then lies in owning the fact that those changes helped me in a certain way, but it should not be a blanket recommendation for the world to do just because you had a good experience on something. Like we need to- That goes with any, any anecdote, but you know, for- for something to be a public health recommendation, it needs to come through the strongest evidence-based science that we have. Right, and, and converging lines of evidence from different and levels. If you're a, a dietitian or a nutritionist or whoever giving nutrition advice today to help improve the health of people, you have to consider the health of the planet. They're tied together. They're inextricably tied together. So if you're promoting to your clients a dietary pattern that is known to negatively affect the environment, that's going against improving human health at the end of the day. And we can have both. You, you might be able to achieve we can. both at the same time. And that, I mean, that's really the case that I make in the book. The Look at those kookaburras out there. Can you see those two kookaburras up on the power line? Welcome to Australia. I've seen three kookaburras today now. Yes. How good is this spot? It's like a treehouse. It's amazing. If you're not familiar with a kookaburra, Google, Google a kookaburra. Everyone is. In fact, if you want to hear what a kookaburra sounds like, Check out my dog, Dennis. He's pretty much a kookaburra. <laughs> the way he talks, it sounds like he swallowed a kookaburra. Brilliant. Where were we? We were talking about the food environment. We were talking about climate solutions and how we can have... The, yeah, the thesis. So, so my thesis is that from a, a human health point of view, the optimal diet 
is a plant predominant diet. It could be plant exclusive, but equally it could be a very thoughtfully constructed Mediterranean diet or a pescatarian diet uh, or a vegetarian diet or even a very, very well done plant predominant paleo diet. There you go, I said it. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's on the record. It's on the record. Uh, but when you factor in the health of our planet and when you factor in the amount of unnecessary suffering that's taking place, I think there is a strong, strong case for people to consider adopting a diet that is as plant exclusive as possible for them based on their circumstances, working towards that, finding that place that they find sustainable. As I said earlier, everyone's going to connect with the information differently in their heart as they read through the book. And ultimately, you know, a a very, very plant exclusive or a plant exclusive diet is the diet that ticks all the boxes. If you, if you optimize it and do it well, as I show in Making the Shift Part 3, it's going to be great for your health. It is absolutely the best dietary pattern for the health of our planet, our ecosystem, protecting all life on the planet, including the animals that are caught up in our current food system and, you know, whether they're grass-fed or, or organic or whatnot, they're not living a life that, that each of us would consider is great or fair or just. So, you know, that's, that's my thesis on it. And I'm not putting this information out there with any form of judgment or any form of you have to adopt this particular label. It's not about labels. It's about making changes and you will land at a place that works for you and any step of the way is to be you're to be congratulated for yeah and, and the place that you land today or tomorrow or in six weeks might look different in six months 12 months i think that they're allowing people the flexibility to change what they eat or how much they eat or, or certain things about their lifestyle we are individuals that are constantly evolving and changing and, and i don't think we should ever be attached to a label but rather or or, or a way of living it's about being more informed, the science is very important, but also just being more conscious of how our our food choices affect the world around us. And essentially the people around us too. This is what we forget is that our selfish dietary choices affect the other people on this planet that we share. And they also, they affect the people closest to you. Going full circle here to the story I said and, and the cardiologist, he didn't make it clear to me that the reason a lot of these these diseases run in families is because they adopt the same lifestyles and that one of the most powerful things you can do right now if you're concerned about your family, your loved ones, is lead by example. And there's a really, really interesting study. You'll, you'll find this very interesting recently. A Swedish study, I'm not sure if I've spoken to you about this, 200,000 dog-human owner pairs. Have I told you about this story? You have not. Okay. They've got 200,000. Dog owner pairs, amazing, so many in Sweden. And they looked at if a dog has type 2 diabetes, what's the, in, what's the, the chance that the owner has type 2 diabetes? They followed people for seven years. If a dog was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, there was a 32% increased chance that the owner would also have type 2 diabetes. This speaks to the fact that not only do we share our lifestyles with those around us, our friends, family, but also our pets, and we share the risk with them. So, What if you reversed that relationship and looked at the incidence of diabetes in the owner and to the dog? May well be similar. 
you know, I think it's a, I think it's just a signal. It's a signal showing that us humans we're setting up the environment and our our pets fall victim to the environment that we set up. Be it be it through overfeeding them or be it through sedentary lifestyle and not walking them enough. You know, these are risk factors for type two diabetes. All of this and and, and there is other examples in the book really describe that we can have poor genetics. I can have poor, a poor genetics for, for cardiovascular disease that predispose me to cardiovascular disease. But they probably make up about 20% of our fate. That's what the science suggests. And the rest of it, 80%, four-fifths, so much more is in our control. We get to control if those genes are expressed. Not always. They're going to be rare circumstances for sure. But big picture... For most of us, we have so much more control over our health than we believe. And, um, you know, I think that's probably a nice way to bring this one full circle. A hundred percent. Mate, that's so, it's so empowering to know that because we do think of our genes as, as, well, as ourselves as a slave to our genes and that our genetic fate is predetermined and that we have no control. But, I, I, I man, I agree. I feel like I've walked that walk myself. I, I actually do have a chronic condition, but I feel like my the changes I've made have potentially reduced my risk of getting other chronic conditions later in life. And diabetes is associated with an array of other long-term health problems and chronic conditions, which is scary. That's scary. Number me. one being cardiovascular Correct. disease. Exactly. And I, and I feel like it's not my fault I got diabetes, but it is my responsibility to, to live in a way that will allow me not only to thrive daily, but to avoid those downstream consequences, which are frightening. And I don't like to think about them a lot because as you alluded to earlier, fear as a motivator is, is not very sustainable. Joy, on the other hand, is extremely sustainable. I can find joy in the smallest things in life every single day. And that's the things I live for. That excites me. It makes me want to be here longer. And I'm, my goal is to be uh, the 100-year-old diabetic, see if I can make it. It's definitely... I do think about, not that, not that I'm thinking about the number, but I really do believe that with the right mindset, the right food we put in, how we move, how we live synergistically with this world, that we can add plenty of years to our life. Absolutely. Chapter eight is all about longevity. Uh, but I think you can do that. I think you can do that. If anyone can do that, Thank you can. You. I appreciate it. Man, to round, to round it out though, I, I've seen on social media the hype about the proof is in the plants. It's your plant-proof community have already got behind this thing. It's uh, being shared around. People are talking about it. How do you feel? Like how do you actually feel knowing that you're, you're an author, you're about to change, hopefully change the world? Soon to be author. Soon to be. Yeah. Well, you've put in the work. You're, you're, you're an author. Um, how does it make you feel seeing this around you and knowing that, what your, the sales of your book, how it's going to help the Daintree and, and how you've teamed up with Jimmy Halfcut and all those kinds of things. Yeah, how does it make you feel? It uh, doesn't quite feel real yet, to be honest, because I've, I've only just, I guess, distanced myself from the book. And I think it will it'll really start to feel real as I get feedback from people that read it. You know, I'm proud that I've been able to apply myself and get it done because writing a book is a huge process. I have so much respect for anyone who's written anything that is, you know, even close to a book. Um, 
So I, you know, I, I'm proud of being able to get to the point now where it's done and I'm excited by getting feedback from people and I know that if people sit down and absorb this information, it's going to help them so much. And I know that because the information has helped me so much, it's helped my family so much, it's helped you know, so many people that I know that I've shared this information with have benefited hugely. So I'm excited to hear the stories. You know, the retreat that I did on the weekend, it was just another example of how important storytelling is and connecting with real people who have put these, these principles into practice and have completely transformed their life, completely transformed their life. And so, you know, proud, excited. There are nerves, of course, because, you know, hopefully people like my writing. Um, I've tried to carry some of my voice through it, hopefully. Um, of course, that'll come through in the audio version. But there, in the book, you said before, it's nearly 1,500 references. I think it's 1,498, so just shy. Yeah. I was given a cap. Can you put two more in? I wasn't, I wasn't given a cap. <laughs> but, um, that can sound overwhelming and a bit intimidating, but I want people to understand that I worked very, very hard with Colleen and the, the different publishers at Penguin who are incredible, Izzy and Catherine in particular, to make that information very accessible. So it is a very, very evidence-based, science-driven read for sure. And I think that's great because that'll hopefully give you the confidence that this is real information. It's not an agenda-driven message. Um, so, you know, a little bit nervous there to see how people react to it. But I really, really want. Do you think that? Do you think the nerves are a little bit of the imposter syndrome, where you sort of? I've had a lot of imposter syndrome. You know? It's such an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? I, I've had it too. I remember, you know, I think anyone who's done anything creative, or anyone who's done something. A, a big challenging thing that they're going to deliver to, the, to a large audience would feel this for sure. And I remember, so going back to, to my story earlier, diagnosed diabetes, came to Byron Bay with my guitar, took my guitar down to the beach, the sun was setting and I just let the emotions flow. I wrote the song that became my diabetes song. I remember at the time thinking, wow, I just... I just landed on a gem. Like this, this song means so much to me. It feels right when I sing it, when I play it, I feel so connected to it. I then went through the recording process or the writing process. Days after days, months, years in the studio, layer after layer of putting this song together. And I just remember the process being so sterile and tedious and, and I lost that passionate moment I'll never forget I'll never forget the moment on the beach that vivid moment when I first discovered the song and I'm like this is going to be huge like this is going to be awesome but the process stripped the passion a little bit away from it and then I started to resent the song I started to sort of in a way hate it until it all came together the final product was done and I released it I didn't listen it for, for weeks or months and then I listened back and I'm like you got to go through the uncomfortable I feel like your book is you're going to you're going to have this moment where you step away from it, you release it, and then you're going to see it flourish in front of you. I hope so. But, yeah, I mean, I had similar moments, disease of, you know, just staring at a blank piece of paper and it not working on that particular day. And, you know, the creative process is so interesting. Ideas will come to you when you least expect them. 
middle of the night at gym doing bicep curls and, you know, that gem of an idea lands and you have to write it down straight away so you don't forget it or you have to wake up at 3 a.m. so you don't forget it. Uh, but then, yeah, there are, there are those times where you sort of in your mind you create the structure like when you were recording in the studio and you might just not be feeling it and it's frustrating. It's frustrating and you just have to push through that. It's part of it. You're not going to get to the beautiful piece at the end unless you can endure a bit of that pain or else, you know, every single person would be releasing great hit songs all the time and, and you know, so that was a process, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll write another book. I need a break. Yeah, have a break. You're, you deserve a bit of a time off. <laughs> Mate, I'll leave you with a little hypothetical scenario. Okay. This might be a nice way to just really close it, close the chapter. So imagine you are in an elevator. You're holding your book. The proof is in the plants. And there's somebody next to you and they gaze over and they see your book and they say to you, what book are you reading? In a 60-second or two-minute sort of elevator pitch. Who are they? Is it a male or female? Doesn't matter. Just a human being, a fellow human being. Why should they read your book? I would look at them and say, you know, this, is, this book has changed my life, transformed my life on a deep level in terms of the enjoyment that I get out of life and that it's about the food we eat, the effect that that has not just on us but the effect that has on the wider world around us and why that's important and how when we understand this information we can act and behave in a way that is more aligned with who all of us truly are. And I would say to them that I can almost guarantee the way that you're eating is not the way that science suggests is best for your health, not for your family's health. It's not the way of eating that is going to allow you to enjoy your life the most. And I know that because I understand the forces at play in the environment and what the average person eats. And in this book, you'll learn about that and you'll, you'll be equipped with the knowledge to better navigate the food environment. You'll understand how food affects our health, how it affects the planet's health, and you'll be so confident, so empowered to make the changes. And when you make those changes, I don't want anything in return from you except for you to pay this forward by, at this stage, I'd probably put the book in their hands but I wouldn't let go of it yet. To pay it forward by sharing this book with everyone around you that you love and leading by example for your community to follow. And at the end of the day, you will be living with more purpose than you probably have ever imagined. You'll be changing the health and life of people around you from far and wide and what greater purpose is there than that beautiful beautifully said what a pitch can we have a song to take us out yeah you want me to round this out with a little tune okay where's my guitar so this i feel like you you're probably a little sick of this song by now right admit it is this the theme song i've been playing this give us a theme song it's fitting <laughs> mate i've been playing this song every day in byron i love it two three hours a I day love it. been working on a new pre-dinner tunes come on. But anyway, before I do play this song, I just want to thank you for having me back on. 
I just, mate, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. I've had it. I know we've gone two hours, right? Have we? Wow. I don't know, who knew? And I might just thank the listeners because there have been an, an enormous amount of people who have supported this show. And, you know, while, of course, my dad, his story was very, very inspirational, planted a seed and, and, and got me going in the writing process, the support and love and questions from the community really inspired me to get through those days where it was tough to write. So, you know, from me to you, thank you. Drew Harrisburg. Byron Bay. Take it away. and unedited as these things called podcasts come. I'm so glad that we decided to record that conversation and and so grateful that I have the opportunity to share it with you. I hope that you found it in some way valuable. If you did, there are a few things you can do that will make me really happy. The first is getting over to Spotify and getting around following True Harrisburg. He really is a humble but very, very talented man. Secondly, there's really nothing more that you can do for me personally than to order a copy of my book for yourself and any of your friends or family that you think will benefit from reading this information. Now, Drew and I didn't touch on this in detail during our conversation today, but I have mentioned it elsewhere, 100% of the proceeds I receive from the Proof is in the Plants are being donated to Half Cut, a not-for-profit organization in Australia that is saving the world's oldest rainforest, the Daintree Rainforest, from deforestation. It's an organization that I strongly believe in. It's run by a great friend of mine, James Stanton Cook or Jimmy Halfcut, who has been on the show twice now and actually we had dinner with him last night. So when you buy a copy of The Proof is in the Plants, not only are you getting agenda-free information about nutrition science, an honest look at how we should be eating for our health and the planet's, But each book sold will save two square meters of forest, two square meters of forest. Incredible amounts of carbon will stay in the ground and huge amounts of water will be saved too. Not to mention the effect that we will together have on biodiversity. So to grab your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. That's plantproof.com forward slash book all right my friends we did it we landed the plane we made it to the end as always thank you so much for hanging out with me and i really look forward to catching you in the next episode it's a really 
really good one. Or as we would say in Australia, it is a cracker. So don't stand me up. And until then, remember, the proof is in the plants. <laughs>